Namo Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Vasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swamini Pramani Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pacharani Nirvasesha Sunyavadi Paschadis Academy. For those who are first timers, those are uh, a mantra, two mantras, uh, offering my respects and gratitude and to my spiritual teacher, my guru, Srila uh, Prabhupada. I guess I'll give a little preface. Let me share my screen and let's see how this goes. Let's start. Can you hear me all right? All righty. Let's assume you can. Now, let's see what happens here. Okay. Uh, this may eat out some of the text, but we'll, we'll see what we can do about that. Hold on a second here. Okay. The, those who are, believe in higher dimensions of consciousness, higher realities, who are theists, who believe that consciousness is not just brain function, but there's actually an eternal living entity that is the source of consciousness. Uh, we are often seen as outliers, you know, in, 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 off in the, in, in the distance, uh, that we're not practical. And the high ground in, the, in culture, so-called culture, let's say, you know, the modern world, the high ground is held by the materialists, the reductionists, that everything can be reduced down to laws of physics and interactions of matter. And we're just sentimentalists and wishful thinking. And, you know, if that helps you get through the night, we'll find for you, but I'm a realist. So this um, presentation is just let's step back and look at some of those things. We accept many things just because we do. We do. We've always done it that way and you know, whatever. But just for a moment, let's actually be uh, real scientists and just look at the data. Let's just look at data without, through the filter of preconceptions. And frankly, jumping to the end, I think you will find that there is a solid, there certainly is a legitimate case for investigating the Vedic version, the, the, the wisdom and knowledge of the Vedas as presented by its great teachers. There's a solid ground for that. So that's a little setup for this. So you know they say seeing is believing. Okay, it may be believing, but is believing the same as knowing? And here you see, we've all got, unless you had a deprived childhood, we've all looked through kaleidoscopes. And, you know, it's like medieval stained glass window. Very, very beautiful. But what's actually inside? Now, what's up with this? Okay. If you ever took apart a kaleidoscope, which I did when I was a kid, and I think many people did, you will find that actually there's no beautiful stained glass uh, window inside there. Rather, there's some chips of, gl of uh, glass, colored glass, some lenses, a metal tube, and there's three mirrors. And based on, you know, you know how it works, based on the refraction of the mirrors, you get the pictures. But really, it's just little bits of broken glass. So 
what are we seeing and what's it based on? What I will go into it later, but those three, we see the world, what they call three modes of nature. Like those three mirrors create those beautiful pictures. The mind, like seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. You've heard the saying? So we see the world through a combination of these modes of nature, goodness, passion, and ignorance. Like from yellow, red, and blue, you can make all the colors in the rainbow. So those combinations create all the different consciousness, consciousnesses and, and conceptions. It's all based on simply seeing the sense objects, the little bits of broken glass, reflected through the three mirrors of the modes of nature. Now, let me show you how seeing, this is just a simple example, how seeing is not believing. Now, can you see the knight, see his beak, see his little eye, see the seat, little quack, 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 see the seagull, no problem? Okay. Now you're looking at the same thing, but do you see the rabbit? See the ears, see the eye, see the cute little nose? So it's a rabbit. No, it's a seagull. We could go all night long. Is it a rabbit? Is it a seagull? Is it a rabbit? So you're seeing the same thing, but when filtered through a preconception, it becomes something completely different. So seeing in and of itself, you know, the rays of light going through the eye and reflecting on the retina and all that stuff and the optical nerve, that's not actually seeing. That gives you an impression, but that impression is filtered through preconceptions. Here's another example. Is it a barracuda? Is it a jacket? Of course, we know it's a jacket, but whoa, wait a minute. Now, are these lines parallel or are they horizontal? Uh, I mean, or do they slope? It looks like they slope. The fact of the matter is they are parallel. They're not slanted, they're parallel. Which center dot is bigger? It looks like the one on the left-hand side is bigger, but actually they're the same size. Here's a fun one. Which way are the birds flying? Are they flying to the left or are they flying to the right? It all depends on how you shuffle the impulses or the, the, the impressions. We just have a few more of these, but I want to make the point. Is this a front view or a side view? Play around with that one for a minute. Front view, side view. Kind of a mind bender. Here's a real fun one. Can anybody here count the black dots? Just for fun, make a little keyhole with your hand, you know, like clench your fist and make a little peephole and then try to find a black dot. Take a minute and do that for me. You doing it? You got the little keyhole, little peeking through the little hole in your hand, cupped hand? Trying to you will find that there's actually no black dots. There's not a single black dot in here, but it sure looks like they're bouncing around. So seeing may be believing, but is it really knowing? Srila Prabhupada gives the classic example of the three blind men touching the elephant. Oh, you know, one thinks it's, it, it's a rope touching the tail. Another touches the ear, it's a fan. Another thinks it's a spear. Another thinks it's a snake. So all the, but actually, they're all wrong. They're all seeing their limited angle of vision. 
So seeing may be believing. I believe this, I, but it's not actually knowing. When you take even with perceiving, then you've got the time factor. Things change over time. You, it was like this at one point. What is it later on? Everything, there's a section in the Vedas called Sankha Yoga. We won't go into that. It's fantastic. We'll do that some other time. But uh, there's 24 different elements. The material nature, there, and ultimately the senses, there's so many different things. The mind, the intelligence, the ego or pride. And all of those, you put them into a stew, and they're stirred. This great cosmic brew is stirred by the time factor. You add time, everything changes. Here's the same principle. If any of you know Yadavar, he's one of our famous devotees, photographer, filmmaker. This is his father. So there's his father at, you know, at, at 30 years old. Here's his father now at 80 years old. It's the same body. I'm the same I. I'm the same witness sitting inside the body looking through the windows. But the body's changed. So if we navigate by the senses alone, I love this picture. You can see here it says, where's the sign? Learn to fly here. Well, something went wrong. So if we navigate by our senses alone, as they say in California, we are cruising for a bruising. It is flying blind. I was saying earlier, seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, we have to accept that our sense perception is filtered through all kinds of lenses. It's not just the sense perception, the actual sensory organ perceiving. There's a whole lot more going on. Um, I was explaining earlier that there's three, mo the Vedas, especially it's a wonderful section in Bhagavad Gita, explaining human psychology based on a combination of these three qualities. One is uh, Satwagun, which is called goodness compared to yellow. The other is Rajagun or passion compared to red. And then you have um, Tamagun compared to blue uh, or ignorance. And just as from three primary colors, you get all the colors of the rainbow. These three combinations create different colored lenses. Did you ever get your eyes checked? I mean, everybody's gotten their eyes checked. You know, and they put all those lenses, better or worse, click, click, better or worse, click, click. And they try a whole set of combinations that ultimately create the clearest version of our sight. So if we are honest, we need to accept our biases. We need to accept that we are seeing things through a whole set of lenses, cultural lenses, uh, our own personal desires, all emotions, all kinds of lenses. So seeing is believing, back to our theme. There's different lenses. Picture those different lenses clicking in front of the eyes, creating the picture. First off, our sense perception may be wrong. You know, we may not see properly. We may see properly, but we'll misunderstand what we saw. We show those just a few optical illusions. The perception may be correct. We may actually understand what we saw properly, but then it's filtered through cultural biases, conditioning, predisposition. Then on top of that, you've got another lens filtered through our ego, our pride, our desires. So we think, well, oh, hey, Here's reality. 
You know, I, I, I'm a fact-based man. I see it, I smell it, I taste it, I measure it. That's reality. Well, that is just completely superficial, arrogant, and foolish, if I'm quite honest. So blind faith, they say it's blind faith. But we take on so much knowledge without direct experience. The claim is I can chop everything into little pieces and I can study it. And everything acts according to knowable laws of physics. That's the basic premise of the materialistic worldview. But that's not what's happening at all. We have a professor. He's a, a, a PhD in education up here at UCS, University of California, San Diego, one of the top hard sciences in the USA. And he said something, and I was shocked. He said it was something like, only something like 5%, 6% of what we consider, what we know is actually comes from direct perception. We only directly experience only a small sliver of what makes up our pool of knowledge. I'll give you some examples. Anybody here ever seen the pyramids? Anybody seen the Eiffel Tower? We have any Eiffel Tower doubters? We have any pyramid doubters? Hey, it could be Photoshop. Hey, they just took a, pair, a picture of Paris and they photoshopped in the Eiffel Tower. Why do we believe it? We don't believe it because we've seen it. Most people have not been to Paris and seen it. Or you can pick in the Great Wall of China, whatever you want to pick. But we, we, we have faith in the resources. Well, I saw it on Google Images. Well, that could be Photoshop. But hang on a minute. You know, my, my, my friends went there, and it's in the encyclopedia. And, you know, whatever. I, it's on Wikipedia. So we believe a whole lot of stuff. Most of what we consider that we know is not by direct experience, but it's based on who we have faith in. <clears throat> what source of knowledge do we put our faith in? That's how we actually build our pool of knowledge. Same principle. Anybody here ever met Christopher Columbus? Any everybody, everybody ever meet George Washington? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We have any Columbus doubters? Of course, we may have met him. Who knows what body he, you might be married to him. I mean, who knows where he, she, you know, it, what body they're in now 500 years later. But certainly, we've never met Christopher Columbus, but we have confidence in the sources that tell us about him. That's why we believe it. Not by direct experience, far, not by something we can personally measure. The fact of the matter is, Prabhupada's quota, the, the, my spiritual master, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, he told our, he started what was called the Bhaktivedanta Institute. It was a group of devotee scientists, PhDs, masters in the hard sciences. And he said, actually, we have a world that knows more and more about less and less. We have a man who comes to the temple here. He works at Scripps Institute, again, one of the top research institutes in America. Uh, and it's connected with Salk Institute. He makes over $125,000 a year. He studies a particular type of laser and how it travels through a particular type of crystal. I mean, it's, it's, it's a subset of a subset of a subset. And that's all he knows. Prabhupada told two jokes, just making this point. Um, there was a man riding on a train. And... Uh, 
with his friend. And in India at the time, they had these coal burning trains. You can see all the soot blowing out the back. And, you know, if you open your window and you're one of the front cars, that soot blows right in your window. So the man opens his window to get some fresh air and, oh, he gets a cinder in his eye. We all know it's extremely painful. You get something in your eye. His friend goes to look for a doctor to help. Goes through all the different compartments, can't find a doctor. By good fortune, the last compartment is a doctor. He, but this one's a cardiologist. This one's an op, uh, you know, uh, uh, endocrinologist. This one's a nephrologist you know, for kidneys. All these different. Finally, he finds an ophthalmologist. He finds an eye doctor. He brings the eye doctor up. The eye doctor looks at the man with a cinder in his eye and says, gee, I wish I could help you, but the cinder's in the right eye. I'm a left eye specialist. Ha, 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 ha. That's Prabhupada's joke. So we know so many things. Prabhupada went to MIT, you know, one of the top research science institutes in the world. And he asked them, you've got so many departments, and we respect that. We appreciate what you, but can you tell me the department that can tell me what the difference between a living man and a dead man is? Can you tell me, can you take a dead man, a car runs out of gas due to, you know, uh, lack of petrol, stops moving, you put gas in, it moves. So take a dead body, put the right chemicals in, and make him living. Now we'll get into that in a moment, but where is the department? Now they're actually doing it at MIT. They actually have a department that's studying what is consciousness. I won't tell the other joke because of the time factor. Some, if we have time at the end, but it's Prabhupada's joke about a drunk man looking under a streetlight. We'll tell it some other time. Now we accept that the Vedic literature tell fantastic stories. Now, those of you who don't know what this picture means, uh, we're saying that all creation came from a transcendent Supreme Lord. Uh, everything, like the sun, everything emanates and rests upon the sunlight. But the sun remains an independent, irreducible commodity. There's the sun and the sunlight. So we believe there's actually a, a all the energy rests on an energetic, and that is the Supreme Lord. And how that happens? It's very detailed in the Vedic literature, but it's quite fantastic. No doubt about it. It's, it's a mind blower. We don't shy away from that because we're not alone. The materialists also tell us fantastic stories. They literally tell us that everything came from nothing. What does that mean? That, that guy, I forget his name, uh, not Stephen Gould, but he's, I don't think he's at MIT, but he's one of the top uh, evolutionists. And they can, they, they say, they've got the math, math, well, I'll do this. They say that everything came from a singularity. They've moved away from the Big Bang, because then that's just an infinite regress. Well, where did the matter come from? It exploded. What caused it to explode? So many things. So now, in many ways, they talk about this singularity. A tiny point, infinitesimally small, infinitely dense, that all of a sudden, all matter came out of. Now, there's unlimited points. Why one point, everything came out of it? Why not another point? I mean, there's so many questions about this thing. And the way everything unfolds from that singularity, I mean, the, 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 the idea that that happened by random chance 
the predetermined calculations and ratios that need to be implanted from the very onset for the universe to come out as it, it's just, the statistics are impossible, frankly. But anyway, that's another issue. But, and this guy, he says, uh, the all existence is the ultimate free lunch. Everything just, boom, came out of this tiny point, this singularity. I mean, that's pretty fantastic. And it's not, it's a very complex nothing. Um, it takes, I saw a, a short video this one time, and you know those uh, blackboards, those writing boards, chalkboards, that one slides behind the other? So this was at the University of Chicago, trying to explain how everything comes from a singularity. And there were 16 blackboards of math required to explain how everything came out of nothing. And even then, they only go back to the first, like, millisecond, I don't even, nanosecond, whatever it is, and they don't, can't explain that. And the guy at the end of the presentation says, just give us one free miracle, and we will explain the rest. How it actually started, that, that, that ground zero event, we can't explain. We say we've got the math explaining everything from that point. So their answer, give us one free miracle. The argument is if you roll the dice enough times, a planet like our Earth will come out. There's so many dud universes. Give it enough time, you know, just keep rolling the dice and eventually you're gonna get double sixes. Well, the fact of the matter is if you take, if you take all the components and ratios and elements that need to be lined up sequentially to get a universe, and the number of times you throw the dice, the Earth, the, the, the universe, by their own estimation, it hasn't even been around long enough. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but there's sufficient, what do they call it in the court of law? There's uh, reasonable doubt. There certainly is sufficient evidence to create reasonable doubt, and we should open our minds to looking at other explanations. That's all we really want to do here is to, that, that there are other legitimate explanations. Here's one of my favorites. Go home and Google it. It's called dark matter. You may have heard of dark matter. It's called dark matter because we can't see it. Nobody knows where it is. No one's actually measured it. What it really is, is a fudge factor. There needs to be a certain gravitational mass in the universe to keep two things from happening to keep the universe, our planetary solar system, just from completely spinning out into nothingness. So there needs to be something that holds a certain amount of uh, mass that holds it together. Also, if there wasn't, a, if there was, you know, what keeps it from imploding on itself? So from spinning out uh, into the, you know, destruction or imploding to destruction, there needs to be a certain amount of mass in our in our planetary system in the, in the universe cosmos but there isn't they can't find it it's not there it's like if you did your checkbook and it didn't add up and you just threw in a number it's the only it's a fudge factor go home google it I'm, i couldn't make this stuff up if i wanted to so it's simply it's like suppose you come into uh swami's convenience store and you buy something for $10, give me $100. And literally, this dark matter 
I forget what it was, 83% or maybe even more of the matter of the universe. They don't know where it is. It just must be there because it's the only way their physics works. I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. So suppose you come into Badri Narayan's um, uh, convenience store. You buy $10 worth, $10 worth of stuff. You give me a $100 bill. I say, thank you. You say, hey, hang on. Where's my change? Where's my $90? Oh, no, I say to you, it's there. They're just dark dollars. It's in your wallet. You just can't see it. Are you going to accept that? I mean, hang on a minute. So, frankly, we've been bluffed, badgered, and buffooned uh, so that we think, well, they must know what they're talking about. But it is profound speculation. Here's a great one. Parallel universes. This is our friend Einstein, who read Bhagavad Gita, by the way. But parallel universes. It's accepted in physics that there are parallel universes. I forget how many dimensions they're up to. I mean, simple example is we have our three dimensions, then you add time as a fourth dimension. And there's so many other dimensions. Now, what's this mean to us? I'll give you a simple example. What is the shortest distance between two points? Sorry to take you back to your you know, basic geometry or whatever it is. Everyone knows. What is the shortest distance between two points? A straight line, just like it shows here. Straight line is the shortest distance. Actually, that's not true. What? I'll show you. A straight line, not always. In two dimensions, when you only are dealing with width and length, sure, it's true. But as soon as you add the third dimension of height, suppose between your two points, one of your points is in Tibet and another one of your points is in South India. A straight line is not going to be the fastest way. You have to find how to get through the Himalayas, how to get over. Once you add the dimension of height, the shortest distance may be to go around the thing. It may be a curve rather than a straight line. So things change once you add different dimensions. It's not all basically sense perception. I'll give you an example. We live in a multidimensional universe. That's, that's stock and trade physics. I'm not making anything up there. I'm not asking you to be you know, blind faith or a true believer. This is math, basic physics. Well, how, what does this mean to us? I'll give you an example. This is a main intersex, intersection in Chicago. Michigan and Ohio Street. So suppose we're both living in the Windy City in Chicago, and uh, I'm going to meet Sarvabhoma Prabhu. Uh, we're at the Chicago Temple. Say, hey, hey, I'll meet you downtown tomorrow, 10 o'clock, um, on the northeast corner of Ohio and Michigan. You know. So it's pretty clear. The time is fixed. Which corner? Which street? Northeast, not, the, not that corner, this corner. Pretty hard to miss, right? Sarvabhoma Prabhu is a very nice, responsible person. He shows up early. He's there at 9.45. 10 o'clock, no Swami. 10.15, no Swami. 10.30, I mean, he's respectful, but he's got stuff to do. So he figures, well, something must have happened. And off he goes. The next morning we meet at the temple. I say, Sarvabhoma, with all due respect, what happened? I waited for you for an hour. He says, well, hang on. I was there too. How is it possible? It is possible, but how is it possible that he and I were both 
at the corner, northeast corner of Ohio and Michigan at 10 a.m., not p.m., 10 a.m., you know, whatever it is, uh, central time, and we completely missed each other. Add the dimension of time. Suppose there's a big building on that corner. Suppose he's in the ground floor and I'm on the fifth floor. In two dimensions, we're in the same place. You add the third dimension and all of a sudden we're completely different. The simple fact of the matter is we live in a multi-dimensional universe. Let me take the most extreme example. Did we really go to the moon? Now, we may have landed on the moon. We may have sent our little, you know, thing, beep, 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 and landing there, you know, and then they got out, you know, with one giant step for mankind, and, and it was just dust, and they left. But according to the Vedas, the moon is a heavenly planet. It's celestial. Well, this proves the Vedas are wrong. Uh, just see, it's just sentiment, and now we've misproved it, disproved it. Doesn't mean that at all. It means that you've got to have the right qualifications. It's a multidimensional universe. If I go down to the ocean and I take a snap of the ocean, I'll say it's uninhabited. But if I enter into the ocean, if I have the qualification and the means to enter into the ocean, there's so many living entities. I mean, whales and sharks and flying fish, so many things. So it's, it's a question of having the qualification to enter into those higher dimensions. That's what the great yogis and mystics do. So many things. So we are in a very pedestrian level. If you have a com computer, you know, the, 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 the kid goes on it and does his homework. Uh, the husband, you know, he goes on, he's got his, you know, what he's going to get at, at, at the hardware store. He's got his shopping list. The wife may be a physicist. She's got, you know, or maybe she works for the CIA. She's got her, all her top secret. According to security clearance, the computer will, you know, reveal completely different levels. I'm sitting in the room. I turn on my phone. All of a sudden, I've got Amazon. Without a phone, I don't see it. But I, all of a sudden, with my phone, I've got sports, you know, ESPN going past me. I've got, you know, whatever it is. So it's, it's a question of having the right device, to the right consciousness, the right qualification to enter into higher dimensions. And we are simply on a pedestrian, uh, you know, two-dimensional, throw-in-time level and think we know everything. So arrogant. So we don't have time to go into it, but science is full of fantastic stories. Remember my premise. Sure, the theists, the followers of the Vedas, the spiritualists, we believe in a fantastic universe and reality. We do. We don't run away from it. But so do the material. They got black holes, dwarf stars, time worms, the Big Bang, evolution. Where do you want to start? Here's a simple one. They used to think, you know, and that, that, that a one cell is simply, you know, it's like a Ziploc bag with, bag with some saline solutions some proteins, and that's what it the more they study the single cell, it is more complicated than New York City. How it operates is absolutely a mind blower. How all the systems are sequenced and interdependent, it's just what to speak of simulating it. They can't even understand it. Here's, a here's another favorite of mine. This is the one cell parmesium. It is self-replicating, self-assembling, 
and self-repairing. Let's see, no one can make something like this. It moves 10 times its body length per second. This is the equivalent of our speeding along the highway. Its motor is 90% efficient. That's, you know, how much energy goes in and how much energy it puts out in propelling the thing. A gas motor is 15%. This parmesium, 90% efficient. Steam's a little better, 30 to 35%. So this, it, it can reproduce itself. It assembles itself. It's, it repairs itself. Show me a car. Show me a computer that can do anything like this. One last thing, and we'll move on to another field. The Vedas call it, um, what is it? Um, Parmeshwara, the perfect, complete controller. Parama means complete. This universe is perfectly balanced. Why is there salt in the ocean? It acts as a, 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 a preservative, and it's also a distilling agent. The sun shines on the ocean, draws up the water, carries it in the form of clouds. The clouds bang against the mountains, pull out minerals, and they're stored there as, as snow. In due course, in an appropriate flow, they melt, they come out of the mountain, they bring all the water, all the minerals, they water all the crops, they nourish humankind via the rivers, they pick up the trash, and they deposit all back in the ocean. It is a perfect free energy machine. Now, because it's material, eventually it wears out. Fine, we accept that. But that this, the idea that this happened without an intelligence behind it, what is the nature of that intelligence? That's a whole other thing. But that there's no intelligence, that it happened by random chance. Let me give you an example. All we ask for is a level playing field. All we ask for is seamless logic. Not a double standard. I'll give you an example. I was, what time is it? Okay, we'll wrap up shortly. I was on an airplane flying to India in the pre-COVID days. And a gentleman happened to be India, from India sat down next to me. And he said, oh, I, you know, I'm dressed as a sannyasi, as a devotee. He said, oh, I see that you're a Krishna Bhakta. I said, yes, I am, trying to be. He said, I, sir, am an atheist. I was thinking, this is going to be a long flight. But I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. I said, okay, what do you work as? He said, I am one of the chief engineers at Boeing, and we designed the 747 jetliner. I said, really? I said, did you do it all by yourself? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we had about... Let's pick a low number. I think he said more, but he said, uh, I think he said about 18, but let's say 10. It's an easier number to do the math. Oh, no, we had 10 teams. You know, they, what do you, what do you call it? You've got the, the, the electrical system. You've got the propulsion system. You've got the, 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 the you know, the, the, whatever you call it. The, so many different, don't so many different systems. The, uh, so, he had 10 teams. I said, how many on a team? He said, oh, about 100. I mean, about uh, at least 10 lead people. I said, okay, so you had 150 people. And he said, and that wasn't just it. Oh, we had so many subcontractors who provided this and that, so many things. But let's just be, con let's be conservative. You got 150 people, minimum. 
far more of it than actually, but 150 people that designed the 747. And the man was proud of his accomplishment, and rightly so, no problem. But let's look at it. 747s, I don't mean to scare anybody, but they crash sometimes. They're one of the biggest pollutants in the world. They shake, they rock, you, gotta, you get an announcement, we're getting some turbulence, put on your seatbelt. I've had some close calls on airplanes. They're expensive. They're not very comfortable. Nasty smells, you're crammed in there like you're packed in a, in a tin can. And it took 150 of the best and brightest to design this thing. Now, let's compare that to the planet Earth. Krishna says in Gita, Sarva Loka Maheshwaram, that he's the creator and the controller of all the planets. Earth never crashes. We never get an announcement, you know, that, okay, inhabitants of Earth, put on your seatbelts, we're going to be rocking and rolling. An airplane travels, I don't know, 600 miles an hour, 747. I don't know, even you take a Concorde or whatever it is. I think the Earth travels at 18 seconds per mile or whatever it is and it's spinning try that with you try that with your 747 dreamliner you try to have it fly faster and spin it falls apart it doesn't the earth doesn't create any uh, pollution we don't get any ticket you don't get a bill for riding on i mean i could go on and on and on but the idea that that which is a far more complicated system vehicle for travel planet earth i don't know how many people are on it. What, what what are we up to now seven billion people on the planet earth whatever it is what, what how can you pack on a maybe 600 people on a, on a, on a jumbo liner so in so every single way the planet earth is infinitely more complex and sophisticated and yet we're asked to believe oh that happened by chance while it took who knows how many hundreds of the best and brightest to make the far inferior product, the Lufthansa or 747. I'm sorry. I just want, all I want to see is seamless logic, a level uh, playing field and seamless logic. Oh, that happened by chance and the earth didn't happen. There it is. Let me give you another one. This is the last one we'll do is consciousness. The presentation is the sense of self is simply due to brain function. You've simply got synopsis firing in the brain. Uh, you've got its, its electrical impulses and chemicals, and uh, that creates a sense of self. I can create a machine just like this. I could theoretically make a machine, and I could set it with an infrared sensor and a printer inside and all the stuff. And it could, when the sun sets, this thing could go into singing Shakespeare's Ode to the Sun. It could do it, but is there any ghost in the machine? Is there any self actually experiencing? I remember as a kid, so this is 1958, 1960, I took apart my grandfather's big stand-up radio. I think I was only about four or five years old uh, because I, I was thinking there must be a band inside and they must be hungry, and I never see him come out. When I opened it up, there was no little band inside. Now that's simplistic. But the point is that there's no, their presentation is there's no ghost in the machine. There's no sense, there's no self. It's all due to brain function. Now we could go a whole lot of time on this. Simple one, uh, you know, the Turling test. Uh, robots, 
They can't play poker. They can play chess, but they have a hard time playing poker. Here's one of my favorite examples, and just think about it for a minute. Um, these are the rooting club of USC, University of Southern California. And they, you know how the rooting section, they all have those cards, and everybody holds up card number one, and it creates a picture. Maybe it spells out the college's name. Then they all hold up number two, and it's the logo, uh, you know, the, the mascot. They hold up number three, and it says, you know, go Trojans, which is the name, you know, you know the principle. So Caltech got in there, scrambled up all the cards, and when they held up, it was supposed to, everybody held up you, number one, it was supposed to say, go Trojans. It's spelled out, we suck. So here's why that matters. We all know these little pocket computers, uh, translators. You can punch in at one end, you know, you can punch in, you're in China, you can punch in in English, where is the local Hare Krishna temple? We have a nice temple in Hong Kong, actually. And we have, we have a number of temples secretly in China, mainland China. And you'll get the answer. You know, how do I say I'm a vegetarian? You can ask in English and it'll come out in Chinese. Okay, we all know that. Is there a little Chinese person inside doing the translation work? Scratching his head? And... No, we all know. What's inside? Simply circuitry. It's really only electrical pulses, zeros and ones, pluses and minus. That's all that's going in there. It's zeros and ones, electrical charges, pluses and minuses, uh, based on, um, uh, on a code, just a written code. That's what's happening in there. There's no ghost in the machine. Now, we could, because the presentation is if you get a sophisticated enough computer, the time will come that we'll have a computer that has an aha moment. It'll have that hallelujah moment when it becomes conscious, when it has emotion, when it has a true sense of self, when there is a ghost in the machine, because that's all we are. Again, that's the premise. But let me ask you this. It is a false hope. If I had, what's the biggest stadium in, in Houston? I can't hear you, so I don't know what the name of it. So let's say the Astros. Are the Astros in Houston? So let's say Astros Stadium. Let's suppose you could build a stadium that had, let's, I don't know how many it holds, let's say 65,000, maybe more. Well, if you had a stadium full of 60,000 people, and you could write code, just like you hold up these cards. I'm sitting in those stands. You hand me a card with a zero on it. That means that I hand a card to the person to the right with a one on it. I get a card with the one. That means I hand to the person to the west of me, and, you know, whatever it is. I, that you could write um, code that you could ask a question in English at one goalpost, at one end of the stadium. And by that code, using zeros and ones, you could, working your way through all those 60,000 to 100,000 people in the stadium, you could get the Chinese translation at the other end. There's no reason why that doesn't, wouldn't work. It's the same exact same principle. Simply zeros and ones and translating Chinese. Now, let me ask you a question. Here's the key question. Did any person in that stadium Learn Chinese? Of course not. 
Did anyone in that stadium even know they were translating Chinese? No. They didn't learn one word. They, they did not become conscious of Chinese. So the idea that some you can simulate certain functions, you can simulate brain functions, but you cannot create consciousness. And more and more, it's a small percentage. It's probably about 12 to 15 percent at the most, closer to 12, of the members of academia, hard science, who now accept that consciousness is an irreducible element of existence. We don't know what it is. We don't know how it operates. But we now accept, and it's a growing, it's a growing field, that consciousness is not just the result of brain function. It is a irreducible element into its of itself. Well, that's a big step because that's actually consciousness is indication of the soul. So we're almost done. Why should all things be subordinate to our intellect and control? That's the premise. The premise is that ultimately give us enough time over, you know, generations. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and future giants will come. Eventually, we will be able to understand all the mysteries of the universe. And it's predicated on the premise that we will be able to break everything down into tiny pieces and that they all operate according to laws of physics that we can understand. I'm going to say that one more time. Just like you see here, these things were captured. These beautiful butterflies were captured and pinned. We dominated them. We captured them. We pinned them. And we can study them. And the reductionist materialistic worldview is the same. That ultimately, we can break every phenomena down that we experience into tiny parts that we can study and manipulate and that they operate according to laws of physics that we can understand. But why? That's just accepted a priori. But why do we accept that all things can be broken down into little pieces subordinate to our intellect? This is the atom smasher. This is the construction of the atom smasher. I think it's on the borderline, a border between France and Switzerland. Billions, with a B, billions of dollars. And what it does, it's, it, it spins atoms and smashes them into, ourselves, into each other. And we're supposed to be able to study the different parts of that collision. It's like if I took, just try to understand the, the ludicrousy of the thing, actually. It's like if I took two cars, put them on a racetrack in opposite directions, and had them drive at 100 miles into each other, smashed into each other, and then I sorted through the pieces, a bent hubcap, you know, uh, you know a, a door handle, and I tried to understand a gas combustion engine. It is as primitive as that. Here's a classic, and I, I could not make this up if I was if I wanted to. The first time to air is human. The first time they turned this, you know, super collider, billions and billions of dollars, decades in construction, they turned it out, it completely shorted out Fritz, and it cost a million dollars to repair it. You know why? One of the workmen putting the thing together left a loaf of French bread from his sandwich inside and shorted the whole thing out. Okay, well, that could happen. I'm just trying to point out how blunt their operations are. Here's another one. You can, by all means, Google it. It is the uh, Parkland Observatory in Australia, just like it sounds. Maybe it has an S on it. Maybe it's Parklands or Parkland, the observatory. This was, and still is, 
one of the prime uh, observatories, electric telescopes in the world. And when things go in the southern hemisphere, and they can't track them anymore from JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you know, Caltech up here, that's or Houston, NASA, that's what they use. They use the Parkland Observatory. Now, they concluded, I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. You go Google it. I've said that before, but I, I, please, I request, don't just believe me. They began to construct the data that they were picking up with this telescope, electric telescope, the echo of the original Big Bang. They wrote peer-reviewed Scientific, Scientific America, Omni, National Geographic, article after article after article making the case for how they had heard the echo of the Big Bang. Went on for 10 years. You know what it turned out to be? I swear to you, it turned out to be that the microwave oven in the staff kitchen, the microwave oven, if you know you set it for popcorn, it's supposed to go three minutes and you want to take it out early. So you spin the dial, ding, and you open the door early at two and a half minutes. Whenever that happened, it sent an imperceptible burst of micro energy, you know, microwave energy. And that was being recorded by the telescope. That was the echo of the Big Bang. And they've recanted. They've apologized. It's just, it's all thrown out. So there it is. I mean, I have a pacemaker that keeps me alive. Um, you know, I have a friend who was saved by, by brain surgery. So we don't discount modern science. It's when they make claims beyond their purview beyond their actual knowledge and perception. That's when we say, well, hang on a minute. They stay within their, within their you know, wheelhouse, fine, we're grateful. So the claim is if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. If you put blinders on a horse, so many things the horse doesn't see, does that mean the things the horse doesn't see doesn't exist because the horse doesn't see it? Frankly, we all have enough horse sense to know that that's not true. Just because I don't see it, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and yet we're asked to swallow that. Wrapping up, we live in a fantastic universe. That's a fact. We have, there's fantastic stories because it is a fantastic mystical universe. So it's not a question of whether, we believe, whether there's fantastic stories. The question is, this is the only real question we need to answer. Which set of fantastic stories are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the materialists, reductionists, atheistic set of fantastic stories? Or are we going to accept the Vedic version of fantastic stories? I'm wondering, what should we do at 6 o'clock? Should I blitz through this? Should I stop and take questions? What is your... Let's keep going. All right. We'll be done in, in 10 minutes. I promise. Um, but I think this is important foundational knowledge for us all to have. The, I'll tell you a, a joke. It's a thought exercise. So suppose I'm post-COVID. I get the good fortune to come to Houston, see your beautiful deities, Radha Nila Madhava, sample the Mahaprasadam in the restaurant, and I get to give a talk. But before I sit down, some rascal 
has poured glue on the Vyasasan, on the seat, speaker's seat. And it's quick drying Gorilla Glue. I'm stuck. I cannot get out of that seat. Now, someone is sitting 10 feet away from me. Say, Dr. Winston is 10 feet away from me. Now, I can extend, I can lean, I can stretch, I can extend my arm. I can extend my uh, reach from the seat, maybe four feet, max. Now the question is, can I shake hands with Winston or not? I'm limited. I have a finite spectrum of activity. Can I reach Winston? And it is a trick question. Many people will say no. Of course you can. But the thing is, if Winston takes the initiative and comes to me, if he comes to me, then it becomes very easy. No problem. So yes, we are finite, we are limited, and we should be honest and accept that. And if the infinite, the supreme, the transcendent cause of all causes, Krishna, if he takes the initiative to reveal himself to us or reveal his self to Vedic knowledge, what's the difficulty? Vedas give the example. This is a mango tree, and I think in the middle there, you can see some green mangoes. Let's see. Here you go, a few green mangoes. Now, when the mangoes first become ripe, it's the mangoes on the top of the tree. They get the most sun. They become the ripest. There may be some other biological reason, but that's certainly one of them. So I've seen, I've seen this. I've seen mango grove pickers in the Philippines. I've seen in South America. I've seen in uh, India. I've seen monkeys do this. So if you just shake the tree, the ripe mangoes will fall, but they'll be broken. So I've seen the monkeys and I've seen the pickers. They make a chain. And there's like five or six people in the tree. And one picks the ones at the top. He hands down to the next guy a few branches down. Next person hands to the next person. And in a chain, those mangoes, those ripe mangoes at the top, come down to the ground in their exact same state, unbroken. So our premise is that there are great self-realized saints and sages who have heard from their master, who heard from their master, who heard from their masters. Uh, it's like a chain of, of, of um, extension cords. And every now and then there's a booster, just like on a phone line, because of friction, the signal becomes weak. So they have a, a booster who you know, reforms and sends it out again, rejuvenated. There's great teachers. Krishna comes himself to rejuvenate. But there are different, they're called sampradayas or disciplic successions. And that is how the infinite, beyond our range of perception, reveals himself. He comes through Vedic knowledge, explained, taught, realized by great saintly sages. And that's how descending, it's called descending knowledge. It's called seeing through the ears. We don't always see through our eyes. We have to see through our ears also. So depending on faith, What's going on here? Oh, go in. Depending on faith is not the issue. Remember the premise of the, oh, you just have blind faith and, you know, you know, I'm a hard realist, you know. No. It's who do you have faith in? It's not a question of faith. You have faith in your senses. You have your faith in Darwin. You have faith that everything is, can be reduced to small pieces that you can manipulate and control. You have faith that everything operates according to laws of physics that you can understand. So you have faith, 
We have faith. Again, it's not a question of fantastic stories. It's which set of fantastic stories. It's not a question of where to put your faith, uh, of whether you have faith. It's where you put faith. Faith is there. So three more slides and we're done. There is in the, this is called the age of Kali. Some of you know, I don't have time to get into it, but it is a dark, materialistic, dense age. Um, and it's full of, just like darkness, you can't see whether up or down, left or right. If someone turns on the light, then you can see. At night, it's full of fear and darkness, and, but the sun comes up, then you can see. So the light of wisdom is found in the Vedic literature and the apex, the perfection, the, the summum bonum, the PhD study of Vedic literature is the Srimad Bhagavatam. So the timeless Vedic knowledge is, can be found in Srimad Bhagavatam. Chaitanya Charitamrita is a study of Bhagavatam. And we can get it. It's translated. Uh, it, you can see the original Sanskrit. You can see the word for word. Then Prabhupada gives a translation. Then he gives an explanation just tailored for us, just tailored for modern times. So we don't have to stumble in darkness. We don't have to just on blind faith accept dull matter and there's no soul. It's just brain function. There are alternative sources of knowledge. We just have to be smart and take advantage of them. So there it is. That is the end of my presentation. Sorry it went a bit long, but there it is. So Sarva Boma Prabhu, what do we do now? Hopefully your beautiful presentation will stir up a few questions. Let's take maybe 10 to 15 minutes of questions, if anybody has a question. Now, how do we see questions? Uh, can you see everybody and they can raise their hand? Yes. Do we hit the, do we hit the alt Y and see raised hands? What do we want to do? Um, usually, um, folks will just unmute themselves and then ask directly. Sometimes that's, folks will. That's fine. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Fire away, my friend. Yes. Okay. So, um, I suppose that a reasonable, per a reasonable person, uh, could uh, agree that you know um, you know our senses and our intelligence are limited and there's no reason to not believe you know that we can understand everything and everything can be reduced okay. down to our intelligence but uh, on the other hand on the flip side of that <clears throat> someone could argue that Okay, so if we're going to have to study things that are beyond our mundane senses and our mundane intelligence, how do you do that in such a way that doesn't... I got your question. Very, very good question. It's an excellent question. And the premise is, I have, we have our laboratories, we have, they're building a new Hubble, you know. So what is your field? Uh, what are your measurables? The basic principle of scientific model, which they don't practice just between you and me, they shovel Darwin's theory off on us, but that's all it is, is a theory. And the more they look into it, the more it's just really wishful thinking at best. But um, where's your methodology? Where is your ABC? You have a premise. Where is your research? Where are your experiments? 
And where are you drawing data from those experiments? Where's your proof? You have a hypothesis, you have an experiment, you draw a conclusion. That's what we do, the reductionists, the materialists. So where are you doing that? Well, it's completely arrogant and, 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 and uh, well, it, it's, 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 at best, it's innocent, it's naive. Just by the law of averages, we have explorers uh, of the external world. Let's take the planet, we have our Columbus, we have our Magellan, we have our Vasco da Gama, we got all our guys searching around out there. You got your, you know, Pasteur, and you know, you've got all your people. You've got your Galileo, okay, fine, fine. You got all these people, and they're looking in the material range with the material senses. Just by the law of averages, you think everybody born in Vedic India was a dimwit? They also didn't have keen intellects, and they just have a different laboratory. Instead of the external world, their field of study, just like you have people, they study electricity, they study gravity, they study chemistry, they study physics. So there is also keen intellects who studied the field of consciousness, taking the Vedic literatures and experimented. They have their laboratories or laboratories. They have their ashrams. Let me give, and they're getting the results. They're becoming completely free from material desires. Those that go that path and want to have developed profound mystic powers. They've gone back home, back to Godhead. They've, they've left this material world and gone to Krishna. They've seen Krishna face to face. So there's a field of study. And if you do it too, people say, well, I chanted Hare Krishna, nothing happened to me. Hey, I chanted. You hear it all the time. Fine. If you want to become a recognized scientist and get onto the playing field and then do those experiments to try to prove, confirm all the speculative theories. First off, I mean, just you got to go through four years of college, at least two years as a master, and another two to three, four years to get your PhD. So that's a minimum of what is it? Four to it's a minimum of eight years, and then you got to be at work at some as just a schlub at, at somebody's laboratory. You got to put in eight to ten years before you can even really get on the field. You spend eight to ten years in a Hare Krishna temple. And you follow the regular principles, you sincerely chant Hare Krishna, you study the Shastra, you absorb yourself as much as you absorbed yourself to get that PhD, and you will know Krishna consciousness. Proof is, how do we give up sex desire? How do we give up uh, you know, anger, lust, greed? How does it happen? They can't do it. We can do it. Because we're getting the taste of the, we're experiencing the presence of the soul and bhakti ras. So it can be proven. You just have to seriously invest the time. Okay, thank you. That's a good question. I hope I answered it. Next question. I'll just make a comment. Thanks a lot for, uh, for this. Wow, this is really mind-blowing. I appreciate it. It builds my faith. Thanks a lot. Oh, that's the aim. Thank you very much. But I don't mind some sharp, sharp questions. Otherwise, we can wrap up and thank you for your association. But if anybody's I got another I, question. I can't think of any questions. I'm just flabbergasted right now. 
My work is done. Thank you, Prabhu. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, Sarvabhoma, do we wrap it up? Uh, I have a question. Could you say that the Vedic culture has the emphasis on subjective knowledge going within, and then from that, I saw some film of a physicist that had some theory that you go into the... See, we can say that. Um, yeah. And it's usually a polite answer of the materialists. They say, look, fine. You want to study philosophy. You want to study ethics, you know, poetry. Fine, have at it. You know, the soft science, when they say hard science, soft sciences. So, you know, you want to introspection and, you know, fine, you have at it. But we're hardcore materialists. We know what's actually going on. You want to be armchair romanticists? Fine. So I don't, frankly, the Vedas do not concede the tangible world to their materialists. You have Ayurvedic science. You have surgery. You have carbon dated surgical instruments in North India. I forget the name. It's slipping my mind right now where the first surgical university was 2,000, 3,000 years ago. You have study of the cosmos, the movement of the, you know, when they thought the earth was flat and hell was below and heaven was above, you just had to get high enough up into the clouds and you'd meet God and the, and the saints. And the Vedas are talking about planets and their orbits and, and, the, and the sun. and They're laying out the whole thing. So the, the, the in, in, I mean, frankly, the algebra comes from Vedic calculations how to design jagas and how to lay out the yagastala according to astrological calculation so they actually worked. So you got the dead animal came out alive and the person got the benefit. And that would, to calculate all those angles, that's where your physics, where, where your algebra comes from. So the Vedas, I mean, I, don't get me started. I'm trying to think of it, but just diet and so many, I mean, look at those temples. They've got buildings that the Jagannath Temple, Orissa, was hit by one of the worst cyclones. They call it typhoon. What do they call it? We call it hurricane. They call it typhoon or cyclone. All the buildings were completely devastated. But the temples, the water came in, the water went out, the base didn't erode, and those temples are still there. The Jagannath Temple is accepted at least being 3,000 years old, but... In their own archaeological journals, they say that the Jagannath Temple is 3,000 years old. We know that for sure. But it's built on the foundation of a much older temple. So they've got these huge archaeological studies, you know, architectural studies that have withstood the, the, the of time. They've got spans that beat St. Sophia's. They can't figure out, how, you know, it's all lock and groove. How does the thing even stand up without pit columns? So I, I'm sorry, but I do not concede that, okay, you've got your realm, which is the emotional, sentimental, uh, you know, in, intuitive world. Okay, fine. And we've got the hard world. I don't accept that at all. I say they're groping in the dark in both worlds. The one world, I'll tell my joke. I'll tell my joke uh, about the spotlight. So if you can picture there's a, it's a dark night and there's a spotlight shining. 
Sarap, this is Saraputa's joke, one of our, the great heroes of our society. Double PhD at 36 years old. Tenured professor at university. Uh, yeah, anyway, we can go on. Sunni Binghamton. So Saraputa says, he tells this joke. So suppose I'm living in suburbia. You know, in all the houses, they got the house, they got the driveway, they got the lawn in front, they got the sidewalk, and they got the little grass. You know, there's your archetype suburbia. So the man comes home one night, new in the neighborhood, but he sees his neighbor. It's dark. He sees his neighbor out on the, by the street side, under the street light, searching around on all fours. He's crawling around on all fours under the street light. So being a nice guy, the neighbor comes over and asks the man under the street light, hey, what's up? What are you looking for? The guy's completely drunk. You know, well, so he's going to, okay, whatever, you know. And the, the drunk under the streetlight explains that I was up by my house trying to open my door and I dropped the key. So now I'm looking for the key. Now the neighbor says, you're looking for the key, but your door's up there where you dropped the key. Why are you out here by the street under the streetlight? The drunk says, oh, this is where the light is. You get the joke? So the purport of the thing is they... They're only looking at what they can measure. They're looking under that streetlight and everything else they don't even consider. They don't, what they don't talk about. They don't, it's beyond our realm. We only talk about what we can. So they're just like that horse with the blinders. We should have more horse sense than these guys. So there it is. There's a whole range that they... There's no answer to birth, death, disease, and old. It's the fact of life. Everybody gets old. We can postpone it. You know, nobody gets out of this world alive. That's just reality. You've got wishful thinking, and so therefore, you know, we're going to work on a cure to COVID. Okay, fine, great. We're grateful for that. But it doesn't mean that there's no that there's no that we, you can't leave this world of Marte Loca. Many people have. So there it is. We don't. I don't give them an inch because they haven't earned it. If they stay within their parameters, we're grateful. But they got to stay in their parameters and don't be so arrogant and conceited. Okay, anything else? Otherwise, we can end. I just wanted to add that uh, you hear very few physicists. And who, and who is adding? Who is adding? Jair. Okay, Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so. You hear very few physicists speak of, talk about how physics itself being a subjective science. And you can't take the observer out of the equation to begin with. Exactly. And all we have done is build a lot of knowledge on the object and talk very little about the subject. <laughs> they say themselves, you know, Prabhupada said, told Sadaputta, they only know things of medium size and nearby. It's actually quite profound. Think about it for a minute. They, and I'll explain what it means. They only, Prophet said, they only know things of medium size and nearby. The first, as soon as you get, you know, as you start searching out into the edge of the universes, they don't know, just that, that Parks Laboratory, uh, Observatory is just an example. They don't, excuse my French, they don't know what the hell's going on. Black holes, dwarf stars, you know, this, that. I mean, 
all it really is, they're getting electrical if. <laughs> and then they create some picture out of it. They could have gone past Nargamuni playing his Vena and the satellite was going in time. I mean, they don't know what's happening. So when you go far away, they don't know what's happening. Bigger, bigger, bigger macro. The farther out you go, the, the more they just, they just drop their pipes and scratch their head. And it's the same thing with the small, only medium size, nearby and medium size. The more they study the, you know, the, the, the smaller and smaller particles, they now say, I mean, I'm not a physicist, far from it, but they now say, you know, it's almost as if the tiny particles, when you start to study them, they act differently than when you don't study them. It's as, almost as if they were conscious. I'm not saying they're conscious. I don't know whether it's super soul. I don't know anything. I'm not a physicist. But I sure know that they are completely bewildered. So they only know medium size nearby. And even then they've got it wrong. Okay, Professor, I, I do need to go. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I'm like a racehorse that doesn't get the run. You know, uh, I, I, I don't get to spread Prabhupada's teachings with his COVID so much. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And thank you Maharaj, very much. Until we meet again. Maharaj, would you like to take one more question? There's somebody posted a question a while ago, if you don't mind. Okay, one more, because I've got to be out of here by around 7.30. And I, I don't want to drag on. You know, you guys all have yeah, a lot. Winston, Winston, can you read the question, please? Yes, Prabhu. Uh, how do I get comfortable with coming to terms about calling God Krishna? I'm originally Catholic, so it's unusual and a little uncomfortable uh, slash odd for me to refer to God and Krishna. Don't lose, a, don't lose a moment's sleep over it. Don't lose... You know, what is it? A rose by any other name will smell as sweet. We, ha we have a reason why we use the name Krishna. Krishna means all attractive. And it, it rests on a word called Bhagavan. It means if God is all, what's attractive? Well, riches are attractive. Wealth, uh, knowledge, beauty, uh, renunciation, you know, humility, selflessness, service to others. At that we can categorize that under renunciation. Uh, strength. I mean, I, I, we could just go down the line, knowledge, if I didn't say it. So it's considered that there's six categories that are different aspects that are attractive. And one who has all of those qualities in full, God is the richest. I mean, you know, Donald Trump, Trump he's going to be gone. Where do his billions go? You know, you can write a will, but, you know, where, is it, where does it all go? I have a, there's a bumper sticker I saw out here. And it said, the one who dies with the most toys wins. I'll say it again. The one who dies with the most toys wins. I was like, well, hang on a minute. The one who dies with the most toys still dies. He's got to leave all the toys. The toys go to the dimwit relatives. They sure don't go with him. So Krishna means that entity, that supreme entity, who is the possessor of all opulences in full. He's all attractive. So that's what the name Krishna means. But he's Parameshwar. He's the supreme controller. He's, he's Vanamali. He likes in Vrindavan to be decorated with forest flowers. There's a, a, a Vedic book, literature. It's called Vishnu Sahasranam. It has over a thousand names that you can call God. Prabhupada says on one hand, God has no name. Because no name is sufficient to describe him. 
So on one hand, God has no name. At the same time, he has many names according to his qualities, his attributes. So don't worry about it. We're all talking about the same entity, the supreme cause of all causes, the all-attractive supreme entity. And if you want to use the word God, have at it. Prophet never got, you know, people want to use the word Allah or Yahweh or we don't care. Those are all different names of God. There's no problem. Is that all right? Okay. All right, I think so. But, but, but I'll, give, I'll give one example. I'll give one last example. And this is in no way to pressure you at all. That's not our intent at all. But just to give a solid answer, you know, a full answer. Um, if I say someone, I can say someone, oh, he's a high court judge. Okay, that, I know something about him. He's a high court judge. Now, a little further, his friend may call him Mr. Smith. He knows a little bit more. It's, it's more intimate. It's fuller. His wife may call him hubby or who knows what, you know. And his grandson may have an even deeper, more intimate name. So each name is different, and it brings out a richer, sweeter relationship. Some are more formal, and some are more complete, more full, more intimate, more, frankly, more attractive to Krishna. If, 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 if someone calls it, every parent knows this. If your child, you, you can't see them, but they crawl out. My son, remember time, was hit by a car. Luckily, he wasn't hurt too badly, but he broke his leg. And that sound, I was taking a shot at him with the brahmacharis. I immediately knew that was my son. So when someone calls out with intimacy, it immediately attracts you. So the name of Krishna or these other intimate Vrindavan Leela names are very attractive to Krishna. Krishna's a person too. We want to be attracted to Krishna, but, but you know, Krishna has personality. He has emotions. And some of these names are very attractive because they're deep, they're intimate. So that's the reason we use these names. You can have a pocket dictionary that will explain a word, and you can have Oxford's, you know, unabridged. Now, they're both dictionaries, they're both accurate, but one is profoundly deeper. So the names that you will find in the Vedic literature are profoundly deep and very pleasing to God to hear be called by those names. But do not lose a moment's sleep. Whatever draws you closer to Krishna, whatever brings out your bob, your emotion, your love, go with it. Okay, I got to go, Prabhu. Thank you very much. for Until we meet again, and I look forward to the next round sometime.